If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Susan Oman about understanding well-being data, improving social and cultural policy, practice, and research. So welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, This is a a fascinating book. It, It covers... A whole load of different areas. Uh, it's kind of important reading, obviously, for cultural policy, for arts practitioners. It's written in a way that's really accessible. Um, I think it's got a lot of uh, really important things to say for social science, you know, m- much more sort of generally. It speaks to maybe science and technology studies scholars. Um, and, and so it, it's, you know, an eclectic book that does a lot of work and, and covers a lot of ground. And I guess the, the, the roots into the book and, and the way to make the book understandable for the listeners uh, to do a bit of kind of definitions and, and kind of ground clearing and, and probably the place to start with is is, is really the, the kind of second word well-being like what are we talking about with this term well-being what what does it sort of mean where does it come from why did you want to write about it um well so I guess it the story of well-being for me begins in in the job that I had where I was trying to collect data to evidence social impact and argue that the work that students and academics were doing in the world in the university that I was working in that it had these well-being impacts and so I was reading all these policy documents at the time about how different kinds of work in social and cultural policy areas were kind of implicitly good for well-being and so I would kind of go off and try and make up some data to 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 prove answers to questions that I wasn't quite sure why they existed and it took me quite a long time to end up in a place where I like where I was able to unravel what well-being really meant in different ways and I did that through a PhD looking at the relationship to well-being some five years later. So I guess the key thing to start with is rather than my story, probably the story of well-being and how it's always been 
an idea that's contested. And this is because, you know, ideas of well-being is intertwined with the human endeavour to, you know, to basically understand, you know, what is life for? You know, how should we live? What are we here for? Um, and so the most kind of popular and the most used binary in popular politics and psychology literature that we're quite familiar with, especially in the last 20 years or so, is this kind of idea of pleasure versus purpose, that we can be our very best selves when we're improving ourselves or um, and striving forwards towards something. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, that we need to do quite a different thing, which is to slow down and be more mindful, be more present and like engage with these micro experiences of living. So what's complicated is that even though this is a binary, these aren't completely delimited ideas. They overlap in different theories and different times and places and they also get misattributed you know poor old Epicurus ended up with a bad name for being all pro-pleasure as being all sensual and a bit naughty when in fact he was basically just arguing for a simple life in the way that many people who advocate for a well-being life today would whereas on the other hand Aristotle was saying that we should be striving towards a good society and that this begins through ideas of flourishing in the self. And this is one of the key issues with many Western interpretations of well-being. You know, these are very individualised and even Aristotle's ideas of flourishing in the good society were essentially enabled by exploitation and slavery. You know, someone had to work the fields while Aristotle got to sit around thinking all day. So on the other hand, other non-Western civilizations are much more about living at one with nature and each other. And so, you know, what the book tries to do in a way is present these different ideas of well-being in a way that's both clear whilst also making clear that they're full of contradictions. And, you know, different chapters try to pull apart the con- contradictions in the philosophies of well-being the psychology of well-being the measurement of well-being and the policies of well-being I guess I guess that's a kind of sort of grand philosophical uh, overview of some of the really you know quite ancient debates about what well-being is and, and what it means but but the other thing going on in the title is this word data um, and I'm really interested in, in what data means and I guess um, in two ways, really. One is the kind of why is data in, in the title of the book, but also why is data important to that kind of well-being story as well? And uh, yeah, so of course, data isn't necessarily, in some ways, it is a far more fixed thing in well-being. It has a definite meaning. And the answer, you know, the quick answer to the question, what is data, is that a single piece of data holds a single piece of information and you link it together, which leads to better information and better insights. Um, But in what I try to do when I describe why I wrote this book in this way is I reflect on a series of scenarios, including the one I've just described about me trying to collect my own data on well-being. And, you know, when I was working in a call centre back in the late 90s, I may not have known exactly what I was doing with my life, but I knew my employer knew exactly what I was doing with my life. Like I kind of had, I knew that they were collecting data about my loo trips and whatever. So I think there's this sense that uh, datification and surveillance and the ways in which big business understand individuals is something that's quite recent, whereas actually it's got far longer histories. And, 
you know, what what the book's trying to do is help people grasp that data isn't one thing. It's actually more about looking at how data work in different contexts and different times and how it works for and against people. So, you know, data about people's well-being isn't always necessarily going to improve well-being. In fact, sometimes there are, you know, there are numerous examples about the, the act of collecting data being injurious to a person's well-being or indeed data about people's well-being not actually representing what it says it does. I mean, in the UK press at the moment, there's big news that um, inflation data is kind of skewed because it represents um, kind of a privileged mode of consumption and that actually people on the poverty line, the way that their lives and the things that they consume has increased are not represented in these data. And so quite miraculously, um, someone who has advocated for this to change and through popular opinion has changed it. But this is like, this is a complete anomaly. Normally these things are like shifting Stonehenge or something. They take a really long time. That's one example from, I guess, kind of formal official statistics that some listeners might be familiar with, you know, debates over what the basket of goods is for inflation and, um, you know, what GDP means in in terms of individual lives and and these kind of broad debates. The book also concentrates on, I guess, a kind of a particular area um, of public policy and and, and of public life, which is the cultural sector. So, So why kind of, you know, cultural organisations, the cultural sector, cultural policy. Why did, you know, these kind of big debates about what a good life might mean, big debates about the role of data in society, what, why did they come up for cultural organisations? Well, the cultural sector is actually a really brilliant example for studying these tensions of well-being data, measurement and social impact that I've described so far, along with, of course, the philosophies of well-being. So for those that haven't really thought about it much before, and not everyone has, but engaging with the arts directly, whether you're, um, you know, painting or creating music or singing in a choir, or indeed engaging with, you know, artistic products like visiting galleries and plays and the like, these are all thought to offer pleasure. You know, they allow us some kind of mode into escape, some way of enjoying ourselves, whilst also offering us perspectives on life and ways of living that improve empathy and develop knowledge and understanding. So then, the you know, it's, it seems a pretty easy argument that culture gives us both pleasure and purpose and therefore improves well-being. But it also, more recently in cultural policy terms, has been argued to improve the way that people live together. It improves community cohesion because it improves empathy or or so on so there are a number of key arguments for ways that culture improves well-being and historically culture has been used in policy to to use for want of a better word improve the working classes so there's especially in Victorian times. And there's this one description in the book from a social reformist who insists, you know, that instead of any wife having to drag her husband from the nearest tap room or bar or pub or whatever you want to call it in these days, she'll instead be dragging him from rapt contemplation sitting in front of a Raphael painting. So this rather naive idea of how culture can change society for the better 
has quite long histories. And what's interesting is actually that when you historicize developments in um, institutions to develop and manage well-being data, and you've managed GD, you've mentioned GDP, but you know after the Second World War there was this move to kind of towards international statistics to measure more than just GDP, but other kind of more descriptive social indicators. And at the same time, Western democracies were also institutionalizing ways of engaging in culture, formalizing how it's funded and how it's distributed across the nation or indeed internationally. And so when you look at these things historically, you can see that they, they're kind of intertwined from a management sense, um, which, of course, um, has, you know, essentially affects how we experience both data and well-being and culture. So while statistics, data and measurement have kind of flourished in this institutionalization of the last 70 years, the cultural sector has kind of suffered as a result in a strange way in that it's had to demonstrate its influence on well-being increasingly through metrics and statistics because they've become increasingly the way that policy is made and evaluated. So this has left the cultural sector in a bit of a bind, really, where it's constantly proving its value to well-being, but through using data in ways that it's not necessarily um, so naturally lent towards doing. It's probably good for us to talk a little bit more about some of those, I guess, kind of like policy frameworks or, or government actions that you'd mentioned there. I mean, a couple of things that you mentioned that stood out, I guess, prompt the questions of like, why are governments measuring well-beings and and what are the kind of data-based sort of techniques that they're using to measure well-being as well? So, I mean, yeah, as much as critical policy studies and critical theory and critical data studies, all of which inform the book, are very critical of the way that governments use ideas of well-being and indeed measures to do anything, I think it's also important that to point out that policy decisions do need to be accountable in some way. So, you know, governments do need to understand the impact of their policy decisions, um, you know, because the decision they make in one way might have an impact in other domains. And when I first started going to parliamentary debate debates on well-being right at the beginning of my PhD, the theoretical example given was always minimum wage. So there was this idea that if you increase the minimum wage, you're obviously going to improve the material well-being of those with the increase and arguably then their personal well-being through better health and less stress and so on. However, the argument against, which always came up, was that the ramifications of this may be that employers have less money, there's less jobs, so then people lose their jobs. So, you know, I'm not going to get into the debate of the simplicity of this presentation, but if you like, this has been... You know, probably a more obvious example is in COVID policy actions. You know, lockdowns protect the physical health of the most vulnerable um, and arguably the rest of us by protecting health services more generally. However, obviously, it had impacts on the economy, on particular sectors, you know, like the cultural sector. Many people were left out of work. People's mental health has taken a hit. Other public services have taken a hit. So, 
you know, some of the advocates for measuring well-being have kind of emerged from the woodwork again um, to argue the value of evaluating the impact of policy decisions in different domains using this well-being framework, which is kind of a cost-benefit analysis scenario. And then, of course, there's measuring well-being over time, which is a different activity again. So you might be using similar data, but your national statistics offices, um, you know, could be using the same measure for, um, well, as we've just talked about, you know, when it comes to the value of goods in your basket, you know, you could be measuring that over time to look at inflation, rather than kind of comparing measures across different domains to understand the impact of one thing and how it affects many things. You're instead looking at one thing and tracking it over time. In the case of the cultural sector or indeed social policy, you're often trying to use well-being data to find a simpler relationship between a particular cultural product or program and improved well-being on a much smaller scale. So these kind of moves toward measuring well-being to understand stuff serve different purposes at different levels of society. How do governments, and I was going to say we, but like <laughs> how do governments actually do this then? What, what are the kind of techniques uh, that they'll use? You know, are we talking about questionnaires? Um, what, what sort of, um, I suppose, data science is, is, is going on here? Um, well, many different types. And I suppose in some ways... It depends on the policy question, doesn't it, and on the scale. So um, one of the chapters in the book tries to unpick well-being data as all these different, you know, like talking about different kinds of qualitative data approaches and analysis and the limitations of them and the same with these national statistics. So, you know, this chapter goes into quite a lot of detail about data that capture objective aspects of well-being. And there's a case study of how the OECD, as the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, and one of the key players in the well-being agenda, um, there's a dis- this like unravelling of how the OECD decided on their many indicators of well-being, of which there were like, I don't know, dozens, can't remember exactly. And the decisions of how you group which indicators into which domains. So much of the well-being agenda in terms of international and national indicators was about deciding which areas or domains of life must be measured and then which indicators were best to do so. So what's interesting here is that this movement to measure well-being both nationally and internationally as a priority um, is from the mid-noughties onwards, which makes it seem like these data are kind of new in some way, whereas in actual fact, most of these indicators are decades older. So really, these new well-being indicators and these new ways of measuring are using the same statistical processes and the same frameworks um, and the same infrastructure. But instead, it's this, just this repackaging of stuff that's been about for years. Was What makes it a political act is deciding what would be included was a deeply political process. And each individual nation decided theirs differently. So in the UK, we had a national debate, which I've written about elsewhere, but not in the book so much. But it's a useful segue into talking about other forms of data, because, of course, a debate is essentially mainly um, discursive. It's people talking about what they think. Um, so th- this data is mainly qualitative data from events and written responses. Um, <clears throat> so these data 
they're so very different from these proxy data, which might capture reported crime as a proxy for how safe people feel, because instead they capture the importance of feeling safe and the relationship of feeling safe to crime and how important that is to people's well-being. Um, So, you know, governments can use qualitative data um, and they can use national statistics it depends on exactly what what it's for Um, and when it comes to yeah most of the national indicators originate from survey data basically so um, while some of it's administrative data when it comes to crime rate when you're asking people how how safe they feel in their neighborhood that will probably be collected at a national survey level and then shared with a national indicator um, you know, a, a body like the OECD to develop this international body of indicators so that we can compare nations and how safe they are or how good they are at educating women or, you know, maternal death rates and so on. <clears throat> I guess these kind of sort of traditional social science methods of like asking people, you know, how they feel or asking people, as you've mentioned, perceptions of crime or looking at comparative statistics in terms of educational outcomes or whatever. I guess a kind of, as you mentioned, you know, older and, and have a, a bit of an older history and, and a more kind of traditional and well-established. But towards the kind of second half of the book, you also raise this um, kind of new frame of, of, of this idea about big data, um, which again, you know, listeners might be familiar with debates over big data. But where does it fit into the kind of well-being um, story particularly? Actually, I'm going to talk about can I talk about subjective well-being first? Because I think that might help explain how big data is useful. Yeah, of course. Um, so alongside these like high-level objective indicators that were being repackaged as well-being data in the mid, mid to late noughties, emerged this idea of happiness as a science. And this all started with Lord Richard Layard, who was described as the government's happiness are and he released this book in 2005 called happiness lessons from a new science and he explains how despite the fact that most countries are richer using objective data um, people are no happier using subjective well-being data and this is called the Eastland paradox and it's fundamental to the well-being agenda as we know it but it's here that we that the idea that we need to measure more than money um, and instead measure well-being really takes off and where this originates is this idea that you can ask people how they feel, like how satisfied they are with their life, which is the data that Easterlin used to come up with the Easterlin paradox. And um, this was increasing, this is kind of what set the wellbeing gender going. So although most international and national wellbeing indicators are in fact proxy data, it's the subjective data about how people really feel, how happy they are, how anxious they are, how satisfied they are with their life, that changes um, the way that wellbeing data are used. Now, what's interesting, uh, there's loads of limitations to uh, what we can understand from these data. But what's interesting about big data, and by big data, I, I should probably define that. Hey, that's, you know, on the, one, on the one hand, big data is a data set that's above a certain size. But really, big data has come to mean data with different properties from most of those that we've already discussed, such as 
survey data. Um, you know, they can come from anything from Fitbit, security cameras, mobile phone, GPS data, IP addresses, and so on. And because as we increasingly live online, we increasingly produce more data that can be used together to understand us better. So interestingly, most of the literature on big data and well-being comes from a critical data studies perspective, which almost by default assumes that uses of data, um, uses of big data are bad for personal and societal well-being. But to be honest, using big data to understand happiness in the ways I've described so far is still in their only days, because when it comes to, I don't know, say, analysing people's tweets together with their geolocation data to establish whether they are happier in a park by what they write in a tweet or while the Olympics is on or while they're watching Britney Spears on stage or whatever it is, is not really that useful because, um, you know, there's so many confounders, there's so many inaccuracies that, that doesn't necessarily tell us that much about how people experience well-being yet. Um, but other well-being data like Fitbit data that's specifically collected to measure physical well-being, um, you know, or the impact of whether you go for a run at 6am or 6pm and how that affects your sleep, you know, this is this is more accurate in terms of describing a specific form of well-being. But that's that data is collected for that purpose, of course, rather than, you know, scraping big data to answer questions of happiness, because that data wasn't really collected for that purpose. And there's still this this disconnect between how successful that is that people aren't necessarily quite being honest about yet. Where does the kind of cultural policy or, or even actually individual museums, galleries, theatres fit, fit into any, any of this story? I guess these kind of, you referred at the start, you know, the idea of well-being being about the good life and maybe culture being about, you know, making people happy or, or giving people access to the good life. But in terms of, I guess, some of the kind of techniques of measurement and, and the um, kind of practices and craft of data collection, what does this mean and, and where does the kind of cultural policy uh, element fit in? Um, I mean, so a lot of the cultural sector's capacity to describe the impact of its activities on well-being is still pretty crude. It's quite often a simple questionnaire. So an example I give in the book um, that I come back to is if you stand outside a free concert that's been put on by the local government and you ask people how happy they feel in that moment, um, you've no way of disaggregating how happy they are in general, um, whether they enjoyed the music, whether they just enjoyed getting out the house, whether they enjoyed exploiting getting something for free from the local council, whether they feel grumpy because the queue for the loose was too long or the bar was too expensive. or there's, It's quite difficult to disaggregate all of the confounders that appear in questions to answer answers to questions of how happy are you? Does this make you happier? Has this improved your well-being? From all the other stuff that's going on in people's lives and in people's heads. And especially if you're there representing, you know, the nice local museum and you say, <laughs> you ask people directly, do you, think, do you think that this exhibition has given you greater understanding of whatever it is that the exhibition was there for? Most people will feel compelled to say yes. 
So one of the issues for the cultural sector and therefore cultural policy is how, you know, there's this kind of innate understanding that culture is good for well-being, whether it's personal, whether it's social, whether it's pleasure, whether it's purpose. However, evidencing it using data that's considered robust from traditional social science techniques is is extremely problematic and has led on a bit of a wild goose chase trying to find these magical answers. Um, So I'm not sure if that answers your question. (laughs) I suppose like it kind of prompts a a question of is it effective? You you know, like should um, cultural policy, the cultural sector or or even, you know, individual cultural organisations be um, kind of using well-being to make the case for cultural funding, to make the case for why culture is important. I guess maybe kind of how has it been used, but also like should it be used? You know, is it is it effective, or or even is it you know kind of moral perhaps? Um, I mean, should the idea of well-being be used? I think the i I think the idea that activities that are that come under the remit of the cultural sector and cultural policy, which is obviously a contested issue in and of itself. I think, you know, that there are, that it seems pretty culturally innate, for want of a better word, that this, that that that, that relationship does exist. I think the problem, of course, is demonstrating that in a way that is robust. And I suppose one thing that feels a bit of a shame is that maybe the cultural sector has spent a long time and in fact cultural policy organizations have spent a lot of time investing in the magic bullet of evidence by numbers that when those processes of arriving at numbers weren't quite as sophisticated as they may have pretended to be or than that was assumed so is it ethical for the cultural sector to say it's good for well-being? Yes. What I would say is, is that there are that the sector isn't necessarily honest when it describes what it's doing. And I think that the slipperiness of the term culture and the slipperiness of the term well-being means that you could be describing, you know, the benefits of any kind of cultural activity, whether it's going down the shops and having a chat with like going to the opera, that can all be elided into one thing that's called cultural participation. And, you know, you could be talking about escaping loneliness or you could be talking about, you know, great intellectual fulfilment from engaging with some extremely sophisticated piece of classical music that's in- inaccessible to the masses. So what's difficult about the ethics of claiming as fact the contribution of culture to well-being is that, of course, this is a far thornier, more complicated issue, and that when these things are described, they're not always delimited as clearly as they could be. Ultimately, when the book kind of concludes, and I guess kind of actually running through through the book, is this contention that measuring is probably kind of full of problems, um, and, and really, we should be doing much more of, of this is in the book's title, this idea of understanding. Um, and 
partially, I, I think, what's most interesting about the book is that it has a kind of a practical element of saying ways that we might do more of the understanding rather than just, you know, more kind of um, excessive or, you know, kind of extreme modes of measurement. So, so how can we do more of the understanding in this kind of well-being um, and, and cultural policy space? Um, well, I think, first of all, I'm going to have to unpick the word understanding slightly. So, of course, the idea is, is that data will lead to increased understanding as knowledge. And then there's um, the idea that well-being is, you know, increased shared understanding, how we understand each other, improves well-being and leads to a good society. I think where the disconnect is at the moment is in a number of ways, well, goes in two directions. So I think that data as, as an abstract thing, which is why the book tries to kind of break open these different scenarios of data in different contexts, but that people in their everyday lives don't really know what data is or are. They don't know how they work. They don't know how these, how this is an important issue for them in their everyday lives. And I think, you know, given Cambridge Analytica scandals and so on, actually people's ideas of data are increasingly, you know, they're alienating, they're fearful and so on. And so I think there's work to do to improve how people understand how different kinds of data work for and against them in different contexts. I think the other thing is, of course, that the people doing the hardcore data science or even the statistics don't always think about how it feels to have their data collected. And there's a number of scenarios in the book where for example subjective well-being measures when they were trialed you know you asked someone who had already low well-being how satisfied they are with their life and they came away feeling even worse about themselves than they did going in so there's these fundamental questions of what are we doing when we collect data on anything but especially on well-being how can we be more understanding of people who give their data either knowingly or unknowingly um, and what can we put in place to be more understanding of the power dynamics of data you know people's data using people's data um, and so on and so the very you know i wanted the book to enable people to understand what well-being data was, both as everyday readers, but also students of cultural policy and social policy and so on, so that they could see how it worked behind the scenes and it would feel less alienating. But I also really do <laughs> do want to kind of get across these everyday mundane contexts in which people's data are collected, because I'm not entirely sure that people who sit behind computers pulling the crank on the statistics imagine how it feels to answer these questions over and over again and so this move towards being a more understanding society is not only like using the data we have better you know acknowledging the limits of um, what's possible with data to answer certain questions in certain contexts but also you know, how how we can use data to be a more understanding society of each other, which is, I guess, a bit cheesy, but I do want it, you know, the book really was aiming to to make real pragmatic 
changes in in small ways, not big ways, just small ways. <laughs> and I think the book does that really successfully. And I, I think, you know, even in the discussion, we, we, we sort of shown how rich the book is and, and how much there is kind of going on from histories of well-being through to discussions of, you know, how methods kind of act and are used in, in contemporary society, lots of stuff about culture and, and the cultural sector as well. And, and given the book is so, I guess, kind of, wide ranging and there's so much stuff in it um it prompts me to think that there are lots of different directions you, you could kind of go in next and I, I know in the conclusion there's um some ideas for sort of future projects um that you know could come from this understanding well-being data agenda or are you kind of bored you know do you think you understand well-being data now and, and you don't need to uh to kind of think again and are you going to move on to something completely different in the future well, I'm all, <laughs> I have to understand. I have to argue. There's always room for more understanding, right? That's kind of where I've <laughs> ended up. Um, I think what 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 happens next is more about actually tying up some of the loose ends of the work that scaffolded the book. You know, not all of the examples of well-being data are actually, you know, necessarily labelled well-being data. I've done quite a lot of work on inequality data that needs tying up. Um, I've done a lot of work with people who work with data in the cultural sector. And so moving the work I'm doing with practitioners to kind of help facilitate improved understanding of limitations of these methods and these data in these contexts. Um, And... Yeah, it's about kind of, I suppose I'm quite keen to take the messages of the book further into practice in a number of ways. And although the book's all open access, actually, another another thing I'm trying to do at the moment, or that's nearly finished, actually, is the book is going on a website which can be interactive. And it's a bit, bit of a participatory experiment to encourage people to engage with how engaging these ideas are and how accessible, how accessibly they're presented. So I guess the next stage is about taking the, the message of the book and trying to, you know, trying to do it in different ways. <laughs>